You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1919th edition of the St. Edmundsbury News Talk for the 9th of March 2023. The editor of this edition is myself, Graham Parley, and the producer is Pat Needham. And your readers are Jill Gain and myself, Graham Parley. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. Energy bills support for households. Founder of Suffolk Charity inspires Prime Minister. Town centre street set to be closed permanently to traffic. Flats residents say why they won't leave. Hundreds of West Suffolk residents who have previously missed out on £400 of government support towards their energy bills can now claim the money. Under the Energy Bills Support Scheme, The majority of households have already been receiving payments through their electricity supplier. These six instalments, paid from October 2022 to March 2023, total £400. But the government recognised that residents who do not directly pay their energy supplier have not been able to get the same support because they pay for energy through a landlord, housing manager or site owner, or live in a park home, houseboat or off the electricity grid. In response, the government has launched the Energy Bills Support Scheme Alternative Funding. West Suffolk Council is one of four councils nationally who have helped pilot the scheme over the past three and a half weeks. It was also the first council in the UK to go live and put through applications for payment. Those identified by the government as likely to be eligible for alternative funding include residents living in, temporary or supported accommodation, residential park homes, care homes, caravans or mobile homes, in a home that has a heat network, communal or district heating, on a boat, some tenants of private and social rented homes, homes on a private electricity supply, farmers living in domestic farmhouses, other off-grid households. Councillor Sarah Broughton, from West Suffolk Council, Cabinet Member for Resources and Property, said, This government-funded scheme is about getting money out to support households, including vulnerable residents, who don't directly pay their energy supplier and so haven't received the other funding support. We were pleased to have been one of just four councils selected to pilot this scheme for the government's Department for Energy Security and Net Zero, and have been the very first in the country to put through applications to receive these payments. While we are doing what we can to identify and write to people to encourage them to apply, residents shouldn't wait. If they think they are eligible, or know someone else in West Suffolk who may be, they can visit the government webpage at www.gov.uk forward slash ebss hyphen alt funding, which is more information including how to apply. The founder of an East Anglian charity with services in Suffolk has received a surprise award from Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Owa Hackett started Little Lifts in 2017 
and the charity has since worked to deliver 10,000 support boxes to sufferers of breast cancer. Thousands of those helped by the charity have been patients at Ipswich Hospital and West Suffolk Hospital. Little Lifts provides crafted boxes containing specially selected items to help alleviate some of the physical side effects that some may experience and to emotionally support those facing chemotherapy or radiotherapy treatment. After delivering the 10,000th box, Oa said, This is a momentous milestone for us at Little Lifts. The idea for our charity was inspired by kindness. I received during my own breast cancer treatment seven years ago. It all started with a group of people around my kitchen table and the delivery of our first box at the end of 2017. During those early days, knowing that someone who was about to start their chemotherapy treatment had received our box sparked a lot of emotions. In many ways, it still does. Each box is more than the sum of its contents, and we're super proud to have distributed 10,000 boxes to women and men in our region and beyond. In addition to celebrating the 10,000th box landmark, OR received an out-of-the-blue letter in mid-February from the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, awarding her with the prestigious Points of Light Award. In the letter, the Prime Minister said, I wanted to write personally to thank you for the wonderful way you are supporting others with breast cancer with your little lifts. So I was inspired to learn how you have partnered with hospitals across the east of England to provide hundreds of gift boxes with specially selected items to relieve the side effects of treatment and boost well-being. Oa said, I feel incredibly proud of what Little Lifts has achieved so far and I would like to say an enormous thank you to our Little Lifts community who inspire me every day. I would also like to give thanks to my family and friends. To receive a Points of Light award alongside so many other community champions and for the Prime Minister to recognise our hard work and impact is an honour. I would like to accept this award on behalf of everyone who helps make Little Lifts possible. A Suffolk Town Centre street is set to be permanently closed to traffic to provide a safer, cleaner shopping environment. A temporary closure of the shared space in Hamilton Road, Felixstowe, between 10am and 4pm each day has been in place since the summer of 2020, but now the County Council will be shutting the street permanently. The measures were initially introduced during the first lockdown during the COVID-19 pandemic when non-essential shops were allowed to reopen and received huge support from the public during consultation. The news was welcomed by Suffolk County Councillor Steve Wiles, who represents Felixstowe and also sits on Felixstowe Town Council. He said, All in all, I really do believe that it has been a very good arrangement for the town. We now have about 325 yards of very safe area between 10am and 4pm daily. We now have an area where people with disabilities can come and walk around, knowing that there won't be any issues with traffic. A further period of consultation will run until March the 21st, before the closure, between the Orwell Road and Cobble Road ends, is made permanent. The Town's Business Improvement District, BID, 
which represents businesses seeking to improve the town centre, also supported the changes. The BID's manager, Kate Kane, said, Felixstowe BID are keen for the shared space to become a safer space for shopping for pedestrians and also encourage further use of the paved areas to encourage a continental style atmosphere. We have been lobbying local authorities to allow the provision of an attractive gate for the entrance to this part of the town, something in keeping with our Edwardian heritage and reflecting our seaside town's popularity. The previous barrier of two grey wheelie bins marking the entrance to our shared space will not be missed, but we do have concerns over police in the area for traffic violations. Let's hope the public get behind this new regime and respect the new laws. A new gate would be a great visual deterrent. Cardinal Lofts residents have responded to the freeholder by making a list of seven reasons why they do now want to evacuate from the building. The freeholder, Gray GR, has recently called for an understanding over risk to safety, as a small number of residents refused to leave or came back from temporary accommodation. Ipswich Cladiators has now published a letter outlining seven reasons why members of the group do not want to leave their homes in the waterfront building. It reads, We do understand the risk to our safety. Some of us have lived in cardinal lofts for 15 years. We also note that Railpen, the owner of Grey GR, are escalating their bullying tactics to the local press. Reasons why residents are refusing to leave, returning home, are seven points. And the first one is, a hotel room is not suitable for a family of five and their dog. Second, a hotel room is not a suitable place to work from home. Third, residents have been given a realistic timescale for their return home. The fourth, residents have yet to see a remediation plan for the building since fire safety defects were first discovered in 2020. Point five, residents have lost trust in their freeholder rail pen due to their failure to manage their investment. Point six, residents have lost trust in the management agent Cardinal Lofts, principal EM due to their bullying tactics during and following the evacuation last week. And point seven, Effective communication from both the freeholder and managing agent has been as absent as the missing cavity barriers at Cardinal Lofts. Unless legal enforcement is taken, in other words a prohibition notice, we will continue to invoke a right to choose where we live. Grey GR said that the provisional accommodation is only a short-term measure, as the hotels are booked for them until Monday the 13th of March. The firm is now working on all securing apartments for all residents and said is continuing to provide a regular update for the leaseholders. A psychological thriller filmed in Suffolk is now available to watch on Netflix following filming in the county in 2021. Starring Salem actor Ashley Medique, parts of the film called The Strays were shot in Lavenham and Kersey. Screen Suffolk was responsible for finding and managing some of the key locations in the fictional English suburb of Castle Coombe. 
it worked with Lavenham and Kersey Parish Councils and Suffolk Highways to partially close the main square in Lavenham and Kersey High Street whilst filming was taking place. Jim Horsfield from Screen Suffolk said, We have a fantastic range of beautiful villages in Suffolk and we were delighted when the location manager contacted us to find locations that could be the fictional village. They decided to use Lavenham due to its otherworldly look. <coughs> a burst water main has caused severe disruption in a Suffolk village this week, as the sudden incident coincided with planned work due to start at the same time. Flooding struck on the B1115 in Little Waldingfield on Monday, with eyewitnesses first reporting water spilling out of the burst main at around 10am. Technicians from Angling Water were deployed to the street and closed the road to commence emergency repairs after households in the vicinity of the burst were left without access to running water. Speaking on Monday, a spokesman for the water company said, The road closure is necessary to keep our teams and members of the public safe while the essential repair work is carried out. Our teams expect the road to be reopened by the end of the week. However, the issue occurred at the same time that planned repairs to the fire hydrant on another section of the street were set to begin. This meant that the road closure and diversion route implemented for these repairs combined with the emergency work to address the flooding, temporarily blocked access to traffic at both ends of the B1115. Residents told the Free Press that traffic through Little Waldingfield on Monday and Tuesday were forced to travel along Church Road, a narrow single-track lane with no natural passing points, causing significant disruption. In response, a spokesman for Angling Water said there may have been a slight delay in moving the road closure from one end of the road to the other. It was initially set up for the planned work prior to the need to the close the road for the emergency repair work at the other end of the road, though this should now be resolved. We're very sorry for any inconvenience this may have caused our customers. A new police and fire station has been officially opened in Stowmarket. The state-of-the-art emergency services hub provides the facilities needed to enable efficient, effective and environmentally responsible emergency services for Suffolk. The project was made possible by funding of £1.24 million from central government and 431000 contribution from Mid-Suffolk District Council through the Community Infrastructure Levy. Stowmarket's new station, located on the A1120 junction with the B1113 Needham Road, is the latest in a programme of joint blue light hubs across Suffolk. The station's location will enable easy access to the A14, the local road network, and in and around Stowmarket, one of Suffolk's largest market towns, helping to ensure a swift response to whatever emergencies may arise. It is the first new build, as the other 12 combined fire and police blue light hub facilities in Suffolk comprise of existing sites which have been extended or refurbished. The building has a range of green credentials, including photovoltaic panels to convert the sun's rays into electricity, an air source heat pump system, 14 electric vehicle charging points, and insulation informed by thermal modelling to ensure this is of the highest standard and reflects the needs of the hub's users. Tim Passmore, 
Suffolk's Police and Crime Commissioner said, This brand new joint police and fire station in Stowmarket brings to a conclusion one of the largest joint Blue Light Estates programme in the country. This is a stellar achievement by everyone involved and shows what the power of collaboration can achieve when we all work towards a common objective. The whole project is great news for Suffolk as it provides excellent value for money for the hard-pressed taxpayer. The new station is ideally placed to help police the busy A14 expressway which directly links the nation's largest container port to the rest of the country which continues to be a driver for economic growth especially with the advent of Freeport East. A fresh plea to identify the owners of hundreds of empty homes in Bayburg has begun to mark a national campaign taking place this week. To coincide with the National Empty Homes Week, Bayburg District Council introduced the Houses for Homes service to support owners of properties that have been vacant for six months or more. More than 1,000 homes are thought to be empty across Bayburg and Mid-Suffolk, with many falling into disrepair and attracting antisocial behaviour. To address the issue, Houses for Homes provides a range of support including construction advice, private letting assistance and a £20,000 interest-free loan. Jan Osborne, Baber District Council's Cabinet Member for Housing, said... We want to help owners of the empty properties to breathe new life into properties that have been left empty for long periods of time. Restoring empty homes not only provides a source of additional income, but also helps meet growing housing needs across the district. We also encourage residents to report homes that have been left vacant for six months or more. Bringing these homes back to use will help us to meet the growing demand for housing. A popular Suffolk community room is set to be formally reopened later this month after a major overhaul thanks to the National Lottery and landfill credits. Trinity Hall in one house near Stowmark is used by residents of the village along with Shelland and Halston, but had been showing its age. In recent times, it has been needed refurbishment and a touch of TLC. A few years ago, a small committee was formed to make renovations to the whole fabric of the place and make it fit for purpose for its many users. Thanks to the efforts of many people from the local community, local councillors, parish councils and PCCs, as well as generous support from Valencia Community Fund and the National Lottery, two vital phases have been completed. A brand new toilet block with suitable facilities for those with disabilities and a complete relaying and levelling up of the hall floor has been achieved. To mark the occasion, the village is holding a special reopening event on Friday, March the 17th. Meanwhile, work to further improve the building both inside and out is set to continue. The return of in-person ceremonies to register new British citizens has been hailed a privilege and a delight following a three-year hiatus due to COVID-19. Citizenship ceremonies recently resumed at register offices across Suffolk to celebrate residents who have emigrated to the country from overseas and successfully applied to become UK citizens. Since the coronavirus pandemic struck in early 2020, citizenship services have been forced to take place remotely with 563 new citizens in Suffolk 
welcomed via virtual ceremonies in 2022 alone. Bobby Bennett, Suffolk County Council's Cabinet Member for Equality and Communities, said, I'm pleased that we have been able to conduct these important ceremonies in person again. Group ceremonies allow new citizens an opportunity to meet with other new citizens as they have en- are enrolled, helping them to truly feel part of our diverse community. Among those welcomed at an in-person ceremony earlier this month was a Sudbury resident, Natalia, who stated she is excited to become a British citizen, having moved to the country from Greece. She said, I've been here for eight years now. It just made sense to apply for citizenship and become a part of Britain. Jacqueline Maynard, ceremony manager for Ipswich Registration Service, said... After nearly three years of conducting citizenship ceremonies online, it feels great being able to bring everybody together again to celebrate this very significant event in their lives. Having their guests with them at the ceremony makes the occasion even more special for the new citizens. It is an honour to be part of their journey. Colonel Anthony Fairbanks Weston, Deputy Lieutenant of Suffolk, added... It really is a privilege and delight to meet the new citizens whose skills, heritage and histories make a valuable contribution to Suffolk's diversity and success. Citizenship ceremonies can only be booked once an application is approved by the Home Office and an official invitation has been sent. The events take place every month at Ipswich Register Office and on alternating months, Bury St Edmunds and Lowestoft offices. Roof repairs are to be made to the Athenaeum in Bury St Edmunds to combat wet rot to its timber structure, where Suffolk Council has submitted plans to fix a section of the roof of the building on Angel Hill. Planning documents said involve re-roofing the chair store area to fix water leaks caused by incomplete and poor coverings and condensation. The number of big issue sellers has risen 10% in the past year with the social enterprise group putting the increase down to cost-of-living pressures. Founder Lord Bird said more people have had to turn to selling the magazine, which supports those who do not earn an income, due to the dire set of circumstances they are facing. There were 3,642 vendors in 2022, compared to 3,296 the year before. Figures from the Big Issue Group show last year saw 899 people sign up to become a vendor and sell the magazine for the first time, the group said. Some 2.2 million magazines were sold in 2022, earning Big Issue vendors a collective profit of 3.76 million. The figures come as the organisation launched its first ever National Vendor Week to celebrate enterprising vendors, their lives and work, featuring a special edition including vendors' personal stories. The week ahead will also see a number of as-yet unnamed celebrities support vendors by selling the magazine, and a House of Lords reception will be held to celebrate the vendor community. An organisation that helps build young people's confidence through mentoring, alongside gaining new skills, is looking to open a new campus. Monkey Workshops, 
based at Bradfield St George near Bury St Edmunds, has been growing ever since it started and founded Keith Colley's Ruffham Garage in 2020. Now there are plans for another campus to add even more workshops to what they already offer for harder-to-reach youngsters aged 11 to 16, many of whom are not in mainstream education. Bill Shelley, chair of Monkey Workshops, said their fundraising appeal for £190,000 for another campus had reached over £100,000 with more money coming in. The team has been searching for a site which will be in the Berry area and they plan to launch the new campus this September. Currently there are five workshops in the skill areas of woodwork, bike mechanics, art, music and growing plants. And the plan is the additional five workshops will cover tech, cooking, more advanced work, woodwork and mechanical skills and hair and beauty. Mr Shelley said they would be able to help over 100 youngsters a week by doubling their number of workshops. These children will have vocational training and mentoring and they will get that for a number of hours and sessions, he said. What we're helping to do, and we appear to be getting some success, is to get kids back into school and college. Full social inclusion for these children. Monkey Workshops, which has just become a charity after being a community interest company, takes children from a number of local schools and alternative education providers. Speaking of the last three years, Mr Shelley said, It's been fantastic in every way. Fantastic because of the progress we are making with the kids and doing it with more of them. It is amazing what they are able to do. Kids who have been out of school for several years who literally are terrified of walking through the doors. Monkey Workshops is looking for more mentors and donations of money and equipment. They are also open to suggestions for a new campus site. An exasperated Haverhill resident has voiced his frustration at the lack of action being taken to cut back potentially dangerous branches of a tree that overhangs his property and a public footpath. For a number of years, Brian Andrews has been trying to get someone to cut down the large branches that hang over not just the front gardens of his house and those of three neighbouring properties in Dean's Close, but also the footpath. Over the last few years, Mr Andrews, a number of branches had fallen onto his front garden, the last of which was on Monday morning. He said, The problem is that the tree goes over a footpath and there are school children walking up and down it, and I'm a bit concerned that branch a branch might fall on them. To me, it's just down to basic common sense and safety. After seeing on Monday morning that another branch had landed in his front garden, where he could very easily have been gardening when it fell, he said, I just came down and saw that and thought, do you know what? I've had enough. Maintenance of path was the responsibility of Suffolk County Council, said Mr Andrews. But despite numerous attempts by him to get something done with calls and emails made, nothing had ever happened. Mr Andrews added, the council said they would send someone out and basically all they, have, all they do is take a look at it. The last guy just got out of his van, walked up and down and that was it. The main issue is to get the branches that are overhanging the houses next door and the footpath and mine to come down. A spokesperson for Suffolk Highway said, we have arranged an inspection of the trees at this location 
and will seek to find a remedy in line with our Highway Maintenance Operational Plan, HMOP. We will contact the customer directly as soon as we have further information about the outcome of the visit, which we will hope to take place within the next seven days. And now for some letters. I'm a retired teacher and school leader who has witnessed the increasing difficulty in recruiting and keeping the best staff, those capable of giving youngsters the education they deserve and that this country needs. Removing the right to strike, a fundamental British liberty, will do nothing to alleviate this problem. If the Conservatives' anti-strike bill is not stopped, workers who democratically vote to strike could be forced to work and sacked if they refuse to fall into line. This is undemocratic, unworkable and almost certainly illegal. Surely pursuing this nasty bill cannot be a good use of the government's time while so many people are struggling with the cost of living. Furthermore, it will do nothing to solve the staffing crises in our schools and even more crucially in the NHS. A government which cannot sort out its priorities is not fit to be in power. Public sector workers should be given the pay rise they are owed without having their basic rights threatened. And that letter was from Linda Newby in Ipswich. And now I've got uh, quite a long letter from Graham Dave Stowmarket. Concerts were a real treat to savour. For the first time in a long while, we made a Saturday trip to the borders of Suffolk and Essex to visit Sudbury. Much visited in the years before the awful pandemic, but not since. An early detour took us to Hadley for breakfast in a high street cafe. Sadly, the high street has lost a highly individual and iconic partridges. Arriving in Sudbury late morning, we located St Gregory's Church, the focus of our day. Having bought tickets for a matinee performance of the Sheringham Shantymen some time ago, our trip was further enhanced by tickets for the band Shack Attack in the evening. I was pleased as I had not been able to see them when they performed in Ipswich at the end of last year. The clock soon ticked around and it was time to join the Shantymen in concert. We have seen them several times in Sheringham and elsewhere, most recently at the Harwich International Shanty Festival, and were not disappointed. A packed audience heard a fine selection of shanties, starting with Drunken Sailor, and including Maggie May, not the Rod Stewart one, and the RNLI anthem Home from the Sea. All were superbly sung with excellent instrumentation and harmonies from a crew who have raised enormous sums for charity since setting out on their voyage in 1990. The time then came to drive to Long Melford for a meal before returning to Sudbury for the evening concert. The church again packed to its medieval rafters, and Shakatak took the stage to tumultuous applause. The quartet have been together since 1980 and began their set with Easier Said Than Done, performed on their very first appearance on Top of the Pops, followed superbly by Streetwalking and All Around the World Tonight. Another highlight was for me was Nightbirds. The vocals of Jill Soward were superbly augmented by backing vocals from Jackie Hicks and the band's musical fusion of jazz and funk was electrifying. 
All too soon, the concert and our music day came to an end. It proved an excellent trip to less visited corner Suffolk, which expanded our musical education in a venue hitherto unknown to us, but having superb acoustics. Credit must go to local promoter OEP Live, which organised and produced two contrasting shows, both with excellent performers on one day at a venue where they had to replace the seating for the church service the next morning, rather them than me. Very well done for a wonderful day, a real musical treat to savour, and that was Graham Day, Stowmarket. Another letter from Graham Day in Stowmarket. I was sad to hear of the passing of Brian Haylock, aged 91, the owner of the Idler Bookshop in Hadley, but very pleased to see the tribute in the East Anglian Daily Times. Unfortunately for me, the Idler was not open during my spell working in Hadley between 1974 and 1979. I have always been drawn to antique bookshops. In recent years, I was delighted to discover the Idler and a trip out has often involved a detour to browse and buy. I always found Brian and Jane helpful and prepared often to books on, put books on one side for me. Brian was also a talented artist and writer. It is rare for someone to change career and follow their dreams, but he did this with success. So rest in peace, Brian. You achieve much and will never be forgotten. And my next letter is from Joan Garner, New Street, Sudbury. Invisible gardeners deserve praise. Can I please draw attention to the Weaver's Peace Garden and Siam Place in Sudbury? It's a beautiful little spot with inspired planting which changes regularly with the seasons. Someone has spent many long hours in the autumn planting the hundreds of spring bulbs which are now about to burst into flower. I walk through the garden on most days, but I have never seen a single person working there. Who are these invisible gardeners and how can we thank them for their work? Please find out, Free Press, and give them some public thanks. Richard O'Driscoll from Bury St Edmunds says, I recently asked a question at the full meeting of West Suffolk Council regarding financial pressures faced by Abbeycroft Leisure and the need to reduce the cost of leisure services. I indicated that by ceasing the annual council grant to Abbeycroft, the not-for-profit company was left with little choice than to raise prices. These are already out of reach of many people on low and middle incomes. In her response, Councillor Rayner, Conservative, Cabinet Lead for Leisure, completely failed to address the key issues of 1. How services will be maintained, like keeping the swimming pools open, and 2. Provide important access to sport for all. Instead, disappointingly, the councillor suggested those currently using the leisure centres would be happy to pay extra. Such views failed to take on board the impact of the cost of living crisis and the health and well-being benefits for the wider population of participation in sport and leisure. I urge the council to think again. Sport must be available for all, regardless of ability to pay. And my next letter is from Arthur Pooley, Blythborough. Shortage of fresh food from Spain. John Dell, East Anglian Daily Time Letters, March the 1st, wonders why there are food shortages in our shops. There are solid reasons for many production falls in many areas of British agriculture, where cuts to post-Brexit farm support 
are combined with steep rises in the cost of energy, labour and raw materials. In connection with Spanish exports of fruit and vegetables to the UK, the Spanish Agricultural Minister is reported as saying that Brexit had brought new administrative procedures that come with additional expenses and additional difficulties. Not being in the EU single market has a significant cost. Why would the Spanish bother exporting to the UK if selling to Germany is much easier? John Davis from Bury St Edmunds writes about the voting system. I can understand the frustration of Vera Hughes, who questions the attitude and actions of our MPs, letters February the 17th, and says we need and deserve better. One reason for this attitude is our first-past-the-post voting system, whereby we have only one party person we can vote for. A lot of MPs have safe seats and so will be re-elected again and again and again. Dennis Skinner, the Labour MP for Bolsover, was re-elected 12 times. The Labour supporters had no other choice. I have no objection to MPs being re-elected if that is what the voters really, really want. But with the voting system we have now, we have no choice but to vote for the only party person listed on the ballot paper. It is time we changed our voting system. With party percentage proportional representation, four constituencies will be combined into one voting area to give us a choice of four same party candidates, possibly two male, two female. We would then have safe party seats, but not safe people seats, and we could vote for the person whose views were most similar to ours. With four seats, the price of a seat would be 25% of the votes. The percentage of party seats would match the percentage of party votes, and the most popular parties and persons would be returned. Then the voters would get what the voters voted for, with one vote on one voting paper. And my next letter is from Anthony Vivian from Boxted. Energy from solar farms is inefficient. I read with interest the article fears raised over size of proposed Suffolk solar farm in the East Anglian Daily Times, February the 25th. The global renewable company, RES, claims the solar facility would be capable of producing green electricity for around 8,000 homes every year. It may be true that in the middle of a sunny day in June it could produce enough electricity to satisfy the needs of 8,000 homes using an average amount of energy for the UK. But the load factor, efficiency rating comparing the maximum possible electricity production with the actual average production over the year, for solar in the UK in 2021, published by Statistica in February 2023, was only 10%. In my opinion, this means that those 8,000 homes would need to find alternative energy sources for 90% of the time, particularly in the winter and in the dark when energy is most needed. Although ground-mounted solar is relatively cheap to set up, it is inefficient. Making it more efficient by pairing it with battery storage takes it from being one of the cheapest sources of green energy to one of the most expensive. The real challenge in producing green electricity is rep- replacing gas-powered power stations, 
which produced 60% of our electricity on a recent day, with a reliable and constant power source, which is quicker and cheaper to deploy than nuclear energy. Rather than industrialising 100 acres of good agricultural land for 40 years in one of the most beautiful valleys in England, perhaps it would be wiser to leave it to do what it does best, produce enough wheat in a year to make about 440,000 loaves of wholemeal bread, produce enough rapeseed to make 150,000 gallons of rapeseed oil, or, more interestingly, enough barley to make almost 9,000 pints of beer. John Lawton from Hadley says, Bravo to Anthony Gant, East Anglian Daily Times Letters, February the 25th. His letter was spot on about the cohort of Brexit gloom mongers that pervade the letters page. I totally agree with him. Gail Reid from Ipswich said, Tourist, tourist centre is missed. I agree with AJ Bailey of Ipswich, East Anglian Daily Times Letters, February the 24th. I worked as a tourist officer in the church in St Stephen's Lane. Our manager was David Stainer and we had four assistants working there. Not only did we help visitors to Ipswich, we also gave out maps and had guides to show them round the town, museums, mansion and our lovely Christchurch Park. Also in the church, we had lovely glass cabinets, and in them were Ipswich souvenirs and gifts to take home. We were really so busy then, and really put Ipswich on the map. Shame our council didn't black us up. Another letter about Brexit. John Bailey says, in response to both Anthony Grant and Ian Smith from the East Anglian Daily Times on February the 24th, I wonder if they can identify one single restriction loss of freedom, movement, constraint or disadvantage actually imposed on them or our nation by the European Union of Nations. Any such effects have been self-inflicted by Brexit and by us leaving the EU. Equally, can they identify one single benefit gained by UK industry, business or producers by our nation's exit from the largest trading bloc in the world? A trading bloc that consists of 27 countries and just 22 miles from our shores, which is now beyond our newly created borders? Or is there answer to wait another seven years to see a benefit that will never materialise anyway, as many of us know and actually forecast? Will Roney, via email's letter is, MP has arrived late at the party. With Joe Churchill MP raging on the front page of the Bury Free Press on February the 24th, Perhaps we should ask why she's doing this. The erstwhile silent MP of Bury St Edmunds, who doesn't express an opinion on any subject without it being handed to her and a party press release, has suddenly broken cover and claimed that the current crop of roadwork diversions is isolating some of the villages in her constituency. Why has this subject been the thing that she wants to talk about in the local paper? Why, when she has so far not expressed a public opinion on Brexit, Covid and the cost of living crisis and the corruption at the heart of Boris Johnson's government, could it be that she's realised that with the opinion polls putting her Bury St Edmunds seat at risk, she must be seen to be doing something? 
This would be uh, belatedly acknowledged by her constituents as her arriving at the party late. If it weren't for her social media policy of restricting who can comment on her posts and statements on Twitter and Facebook, she regularly stops people commenting on her PR press releases, stopping the legitimate and necessary interaction between her and the people she's legally bound to represent. Ironically, the story on the front page is yet to be added to the Bury Free Press Facebook page. Perhaps they're worried about the comments as well. The villages of Suffolk may be isolated due to the roadworks, but to feign interest in your constituents because George Churchill is worried about her £85,000 job is cynical to say the very least. Bury deserves better than this. And there's an editor's footnote, which is the Bury Free Press posted this story to its website and to Facebook with comments enabled on February the 20th. A feature now about phone boxes. Nine rare cream-coloured phone boxes have been granted listed status to mark their importance as the last in the line of the classic telephone boxes. The K8 kiosks all in and around Hull, have been listed at Grade 2 by the Department for Culture, Media and Sport on the advice of Historic England. The K8 was designed in 1965-66 by architect Bruce Martin and is described by Historic England as the last generation of the classic public telephone box. Between 1968 and 1983, 11,000 K8s were installed across the UK but there are only around 50 remaining in their original position as both were removed by British Telecom following its privatisation in 1984. They were replaced by the sleek silver KX100 kiosk, which in turn were made virtually obsolete by the proliferation of mobile phone ownership. Most of the identified surviving K8s are in and around Hull because they were not the property of British Telecom. Hull is the only place in England where the local council actively ran the public telephone network, having been granted a licence to operate from 1902 to 2007. The network has continued to be run by an independent company, Kingston Communications. As a mark of the independence of the network, the K8s in Hull are painted cream rather than the red used elsewhere. My feature is a rare and much-loved landmark which spans the A140 could be reinstated this year. Residents of Stonham Parva near Stowmarket were horrified when a hit-and-run accident in 2021 toppled the historic gibbet or gantry which belongs to the Magpie Inn. They have been fundraising since to get the Grade 2 listed structure which carries a pub sign back in place but restoring it will be no mean feat. It is estimated the work will cost a hefty thirty to £40,000 and could mean the A140 will need to be closed for up to four days, depending on the technicalities. It is thought to be one of, the own three, it's thought to be one of only three such structures in the country, and there are different theories about what it was for, but it is known to date back hundreds of years. One is that it was once a gibbet used for hanging highwaymen, 
or possibly for hanging magpies as a deterrent for crows. A magpie was also kept in a cage by the pub entrance within living memory, and the oldest parts of the pub date back to the 15th century. It's iconic for the village, explained Parish Council Vice Chairman Ivan Richardson. Everyone who drives along the A140 sees the magpie sign, and it's been there for 200 years, even in its current state. The village has lost its identity to some extent because the village is the magpie sign. People ask, where is the sign? Even people who don't live in the village, who have had communications with the Paris Council, saying, when are you going to put the sign back up? The Parish Council is working on getting ownership of the structure. Currently, the property of owners, the Bahar family of Needham Market, transferred so it can be applied to grant aid to help fund the project. It is hoping the legalities will be sorted out shortly, after the family agreed to gift the structure to the parish. It's been a unifying cause for the small community, with villagers raising £2,500 to date through fundraising activities, including pub quizzes, sales and a hugely successful village fete, which they plan to repeat this year. It was first fate of its kind as far back as many of the older residents can remember, said Mr Richardson. It really brought the village together, he added. Now it's going to be a regular event. This one, this year, is going to be much bigger. Father and son John and Alan Ridlaw, who are from the village and run a local brewery called Hamburdusi, has also produced a new beer called Two for Joy and donated 14 kegs of it to the pub in order to raise funds. They are preparing another batch to help raise more. It is made to a Lithuanian recipe in honour of the pub's landlady, Vaida Lapin, who is originally from the Eastern European country. Every second customer they know the sign should be there. Everyone knows the sign, said Miss Lapine, and who said the sign has created a real community spirit. She added, We have managed to survive through two very difficult years of Covid, where many pubs have closed, and the magpie sign, a county landmark, will help with a long-term survival. Mr Richardson said, we have no village hall and we are trying to use our redundant St Mary's Church as a meeting place once a month for coffee and chat sessions. The two fundraising quiz nights at the Magpie and the Village Fate in September generated a much better togetherness and people met that they had not spoken to before. There is a lack of personal interaction these days with everybody using their cars and not talking to each other. We're now going to look back 25 years. The first skirmish in the Battle of the Water Meadows took place in 1998 when police arrested two eco-warriors as Green King cut through a gate to clear the way for future eviction. The eco-warriors chained themselves to the metal gate at the rubble-strewn entrance to the Water Meadows to Cullum Road, Bury St Edmunds, where the brewing firm wanted to build an access road. Green King Public Relations Manager Francis Brace said the firm wanted to secure the gate shut to stop any more vehicles going onto the site and would not say when the final eviction expected before construction was to start would happen. And 50 years ago, 
The first completed ward at the new 3.5 million West Suffolk Hospital in Bury St Edmunds was handed over in 1973 by the builders to the commissioning team. Construction of the hospital, which began in November 1969, was ahead of schedule and it was hoped to open the outpatients department by June. Transfer of other departments from the old West Suffolk Hospital would continue through the year and it was hoped the transition would be complete by September. The hospital would have 542 beds with equipment costing £750,000. Domestic staff had domestic staff Work at Morton Hall Community Centre aimed at creating new parking spaces and improving the existing facilities has been welcomed. West Suffolk Council contractors are currently on site to prepare the ground for 15 new parking spaces. Resurfacing work is due to commence from March the 20th. The improvements, costing £100,000, were requested by the Morton Hall Residents Association and are being funded by the District Council's Car Park Investment Fund. Juliet Woods, who runs the nearby post office, welcomed the work while insisting that any trees removed from the site should be replanted for ecological reasons. She said, what they're trying to achieve will help the post office in that they're going to provide more parking. And also, the car park was quite dangerous due to the way it was laid out. Regarding the removal of the trees, it's not ideal, but I've been reassured that they're going to be replanted around the side of the adjoining field. As long as that happens, it's going to make for a safer environment for parking. West Suffolk Councillor Birgitta Major, who represents Morton Hall, said she has been pursuing a resolution to parking issues at the site since she was elected in 2021. I took it in my hand and I'm delighted that over the next 80 months we managed to get it sorted, she said. The Mayor of Bury St Edmunds, Councillor Peter Thompson, said of the centre, it's a well-used facility and obviously the library that we had invested in a few months ago has also increased the footfall of that area. Growers are warning of a leak shortage that will see British growing supplies exhausted by April. High temperatures and a lack of rain, followed by a period of cold weather, are being blamed for creating the most difficult season ever. Supermarkets are already limiting the sale of tomatoes and other fruits and vegetables because of a lack of imports. Tim Casey, chairman of the Leak Growers Association, said leak farmers are facing their most difficult season ever due to the challenging weather conditions. Our members are seeing yields down by 15% and 30%. We are predicting that the supply of homegrown leaks will be exhausted by April, with no British leaks available in the shops during May and June, with consumers having to rely on imported crops. The Lee Valley Growers Association has said some of the UK's major growers are delaying planting crops because of high energy costs. It has about 80 members across the area that includes Greater London, Hertfordshire and Essex, who produce around three quarters of the UK's cucumbers and peppers, as well as a lot of aubergines and tomatoes. The association's secretary, Lee Stiles said high energy costs and low supermarket prices are making it harder for growers to earn a living. A listed train station is at risk of collapsing, Greater Anglia has revealed. 
Part of Brandon train station is currently closed while work is carried out to see what can be done to save the listed building. A spokeswoman for Greater Anglia said, Following an inspection of the old station building at Brandon on Wednesday, we were advised by our contractors that it was a potential risk of collapse. The building is on the Norwich-bound side of the station and the problem has caused disruption on the tracks throughout the day. The spokeswoman added, It has been proposed to remove the roof as an emergency measure and our contractors will attend the site with demolition experts today to determine how a safe system of work can be put in place to undertake that process. As it is a listed building, we are liaising with a number of organisations, including the Local Planning Authority and Breckland Council's Building Controls Officer, to ensure that all relevant factors are taken into account. We will also engage with Natural England, as the roof is home to a protected species of bat, who are currently in their hibernation period. The Norwich-bound platform has been closed while the situation is ongoing and the station footbridge has also been closed. As a result, train services towards Norwich will not call at the station until the issue has been resolved, the spokeswoman said. A rail replacement bus service is running between Ely, Brandon and Thetford to allow customers to connect to and from trains which are calling at all other usual book stations. Well, we're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. So if you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Bury Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week so until then from Pat, Jill and Graham is goodbye. Goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.